Hello, you're listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I'm Holly Baker, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. For the Faculty Book Talk series, the History Department's Dr. Robert Casanello interviewed historian Dr. David Head about his latest book, A Crisis of Peace. George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. This interview took place during the historic 2020 coronavirus pandemic and was conducted through Skype. Have a listen to their socially distant conversation. David, thank you for for joining me today. Um, For those who don't know, David and I are colleagues. We're both historians at the University of Central Florida. My name is Robert Casanello, and periodically I produce podcasts in the department, and I decided to interview my colleague here, David Head, about his uh, recent book that came out titled A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. So, David, quickly, if you could, could you just introduce yourself to whoever may be listening to us? Yes, well, thank you for having me on your uh, podcast this morning. Uh, So, as you said, my name is David Head, and I teach at the University of Central Florida. Uh, I'm a specialist in uh, early America. Uh, I've written, earlier in my career, I wrote about uh, pirates and privateers and uh, maritime history. And then, most recently, I switched over to talking about the American Revolution. Um, At the university, I teach uh, mostly the, the large survey classes, uh, 150, 200 students at a time in the, the big uh, lecture halls. So I usually do the uh, first half of the U.S. History Survey, and also I very often do uh, Western Civ. So that's a little bit about uh, my, my background. I grew up in uh, Western New York and uh, moved south in uh, 2010. So uh, I am looking forward to some hot temperatures coming up that will keep, uh, keep me warm throughout the, uh, the rest of the year. Right. The the winters here must be very different from those in uh, Western New York, right? Yes, they are. They are perfect. I'll take them any day. <laughs> okay, great. Great. So to, to start off, I think, you know, we have to kind of deal with the elephant in the room. And if you can for our audience, because I'm assuming a lot of people or most people don't know anything about what the Newburgh conspiracy is, can you give them just sort of a brief... Um, explanation of what it is, and then we can get to kind of the, 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 the meat of the questions. Okay, sure. So the Newburgh Conspiracy is the name that's traditionally given to a crisis that broke out in the army at the very end of the American Revolution. Uh, it was a crisis amongst the officers in the army who were encamped uh, uh, along the Hudson River in uh, Newburgh, New York. They were stationed there keeping an eye on the British, who were still occupying uh, New York City, just in case the British decided to break out of the city. Uh, The American army was there to keep an eye on them. Uh, The crisis really uh, hit its its sort of maximum point of danger uh, during one week in March of 1783. This is a point where the war is almost over. Really, the American army is just waiting for the peace treaty to be announced, which could come any day. Or, as far as they know, it could be another month or two months or three months. They don't know because it's being negotiated in Europe. Uh, so during this month of March in 1783, a letter circulated in camp among the officers. And this letter called on the officers to meet 
and to send a strong message to Congress uh, to get uh, a move on addressing some of the officers' uh, needs. The officers had gone without pay throughout uh, most of the war. They've been paid only sporadically, if at all. And even when they were paid, the money had so depreciated that it was, uh, wasn't really worth anything. The officers had also been promised pensions by Congress earlier in the war. Uh, it's kind of a measure to prevent officers from resigning because uh, they weren't being paid. Well, what else is there? They at least had pensions to look forward to. But the officers could see that as the war was winding down, Congress hadn't really done anything to fund those pensions. And they wanted to know what's going on. Is there going to be money there when peace arrives? This letter circulated uh, anonymously. Uh, it was uh, the, the work of a uh, young officer named John Armstrong, Jr., and it called on the officers to meet really outside of the chain of command. He did not have uh, General Washington's permission to call for this meeting. And Armstrong's letter, in parts, it was moderate and reasonable, just simply calling on the officers to meet and decide how best to address Congress. But it was also inflammatory in other parts where Armstrong, he uses language, uh, very threatening language, where he says the officers should remind their civilian, uh, civilian leaders that they don't really have to go along necessarily with what the civilians say, that if the war were to, to continue and the British wanted to fight more, the army doesn't have to fight, they could leave the civilians on their own. Or if a peace treaty should be announced, uh, Armstrong writes in his letter, the officers, they don't have to go home. They don't have to disband. They could stay in the field and demand that their uh, needs be met before they go home. Uh, either, either of those alternatives, as Armstrong called them, would, would be very threatening uh, to Congress. Now, it's called a conspiracy because uh, many scholars have um, believed, and also people at the time interpreted it as a conspiracy. Uh, people believed that this couldn't have originated with the officers themselves. Somebody must have put them up to it. Uh, and the likely culprits pointed to for sort of trying to foment uh, a, a kind of uh, rebellion uh, among the officers are people in Philadelphia, where the, the Continental Congress meets, uh, who wanted to strengthen the central government. The United States operates under the Articles of Confederation at the time. That's the uh, form of government that uh, preceded the Constitution. And the Articles of Confederation, the states have the most power. And it's really the states that uh, get to decide things. And Congress is really more sort of like the UN in the terms of it has limited role in uh, kind of coordinating uh, a military response to the British in an emergency situation. But really, it's the members that comprise the body, the states in this case, that really have the, the final say. And it kind of, uh, the Continental Congress is more like a diplomatic body uh, coordinating uh, between 13 sovereign states that don't necessarily want to go along with each other, aside from fighting the British together. Uh, there are people in Philadelphia like Alexander Hamilton, who is a delegate from New York State, who wants to have a stronger central government, where a central government could kind of dictate policy to the states. Uh, also a administrator uh, named Robert Morris. He was the uh, superintendent of finance, which is roughly analogous to the treasury secretary today. He also wanted to have a stronger central government that was capable of collecting tax money that would be able to pay off the nation's debts, establish the nation's credit, okay, to put the nation on, on a uh, more secure financial footing. 
There's also uh, Robert Morris's assistant, a man named Governor Morris. Uh, they were not related. They just coincidentally happened to have the same last name and they worked together. And he was also an advocate of a stronger central government. So the idea of a conspiracy is that uh, men such as uh, Robert and Governor Morris or Alexander Hamilton somehow conspired with the army officers to have the army scare people in Congress and in the states into giving up some of the state's power, giving the central government more power in order to get the army what it wanted in the uh, short term, but also make the central government more powerful. So the Newburgh conspiracy uh, really refers to this army crisis at the end of the American Revolution, a period where there's not a lot of fighting, but the war is not over either. We're just kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen. And in that period where there's kind of waiting, all these kind of ideas of, well, what happens if the army doesn't disband? Okay, what kind of crisis would that cause? Uh, and it can't just be the officers who are upset about this. There's somebody must have been pushing them forward. And that's where the idea of conspiracy comes in. Great. So this, you know, this notion of conspiracy, I mean, you frame in the beginning of the book. And one of the things you mentioned is that in the 18th century, you know, conspiracies were not um, unknown, right? And in fact, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that you suggest that conspiracies were sort of commonplace or was a familiar form of thinking and processing the world around people in the in the 18th century. And of course, living in the 21st century, you know, you can really kind of go anywhere on the internet or turn on the TV and you'll find uh, various conspiracies. But you've sort of suggest in the in the book that conspiracies or conspiracy thinking was a little bit different in the 18th century. So could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I just saw a, uh, a conspiracy theory last night that kind of confounded me. Uh, supposedly, some people on the internet are arguing that uh, 5G cell phone technology is spreading the coronavirus. And I'm just wondering, you know, it's been a long time since I took biology. I haven't done that since high school. But I'm not sure how cell phone technology can can uh, can spread a virus. That 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 didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, as you're right, this I mean conspiracy thinking is all around us. In the 18th century, uh, people that's just the way they interpreted the world. There, there almost everyone was a committed conspiracy theorist of one way or another. That's how you interpreted politics. It wasn't just that people made a mistake or they were unwise in their policy choices or that they had different preferences than you, is that people were out to get you. They were out to take away your liberty, or they are out to cause anarchy. And that's exactly how uh, people in both the colonies and in Britain itself interpreted the events that led to the American Revolution. British policymakers were just convinced that American colonists were conspiring to create anarchy, right, to rebel against just government. All of the protest movements were interpreted that way. Uh, the American colonists, they interpreted all of British actions as being a designed plan to take away their liberties. Something like uh, the Stamp Act, for example, which is an, an early event where Britain imposed a tax on various, uh, many of them paper goods, newspapers, uh, legal documents, had a, a tax stamp affixed to them as a way of raising some revenue. It was a bad, it was a bad idea, and the British rescinded it um, based on colonial uh, protest against it. But British, uh, the, the Americans, they couldn't ever wrap their head around that this, that the, the bad effects of this weren't intended. They never thought that, well, maybe these policymakers were across the ocean 
who don't know local conditions here. They don't know how people react to taxes like that. Maybe they just made a mistake. Nobody thinks that way. They all assume perfect knowledge on the part of the policymakers and that they knew that this would be uh, badly received and they did it anyway because they are bad people. So that's the kind of uh, conspiracy thinking that's very common in the American Revolution. But it's not just an American or even an Anglo-American trait. I mean, this is the way uh, people all throughout Europe think at that time. Uh, in France and in Spain, they think the same way. Diplomats think the same way about uh, interpreting the actions of other countries and other leaders. Uh, it's very widespread. Partly, it seems to go back to uh, a Christian idea of God's providence, that God is in control of everything. And if God is in control of everything, then there could be no accidents. So everything must have been intended somehow, uh, if not by God, then by some evildoer who is renouncing God's will for the world and, and actively trying to thwart God's providence. Or it seems like there's another source of this kind of conspiracy thinking. It might come from the, um, the scientific revolution and the Newtonian view of the world, where everything is kind of uh, 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 mechanical, everything has a cause, or enlightenment thinking that applies the scientific revolution to kind of social and political realm. The idea that some things just happen by accident or randomly, well, that's not the way it works in, uh, in the Newtonian universe, uh, at least in their understanding. Right? If I drop something, um, it doesn't just randomly hover there. It drops every time, falls to the ground. This is something my, my, my son is 10 months old, and uh, he loves to drop things off of his high chair. And he's experimenting, right? He wants to see if this time, this time the block won't fall. Well, it always does. Um, that would be the same kind of, kind of um, you know, thinking that people would apply to the social and political realm. It's just the way people, people in power always try to increase their power at the expense of the liberty of others. One of the interesting things I think you see in this kind of conspiracy thinking is just how, how widespread it is across cultures, across time. Um, I'm almost tempted to say it's, it's part of kind of a way that that's part of the human condition, part of the way that people interpret the actions of others who they don't know well. Uh, one of the ways that people um, kind of react to uncertainty uh, is to think, well, we're overwhelmed by all the information. How do we tease out a pattern? And we don't like randomness because that means our lives can be endangered for no reason. Um, at least if you have an enemy who's trying to hurt you, you know who it is and who's trying to get you. It's not just something random and randomly bad is going to happen to you um, just out of nowhere. That's probably one of the more unsettling things about our current situation with the, the coronavirus. Is where, where in the world did this come from? I mean, there's just sort of naturally uh, a rose and a mutation in some animal, maybe uh, in China or somewhere around the globe, and this has caused all this devastation. How could that possibly have happened? Uh, well, the, the, the world is, is just random and bad like that sometimes. So that's really hard to come, come to grips with. Uh, so that's one of the things I think is most interesting and fascinating for me that brought me to the project was the opportunity to think through some of this conspiracy thinking and really some of the negative um, outcomes that it has on the way, way people live. I mean, I had the, you know, I started with a joke about, uh, you know, spreading the coronavirus via 5G technology, which is silly. Uh, but, you know, it has really, uh, really harmful effects, too, in that it, it gives people a warped perception of how the world really works. Yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting, because, I mean, I don't know that if I would have read your book a year ago, 
I would have honed into that specific aspect of the conspiracy thinking, except for, you know, we're kind of dealing with um, a lot of misinformation and things like this with the, with the coronavirus. So it kind of really made me take notice, I think, in a way I might not have, you know, had I, had I read your um, book under different times. You know, so, authors like authors like the other books to be relevant, but I'm yeah. not sure I wanted it to be relevant in that way. Yeah. I'm sure you didn't intend it because usually, <laughs> you know, you know, your book's a year in publication, so you'd have wrote this long. Before. Exactly, you have no idea what it's going to be like when it's actually launched. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things I found interesting, or at least, you know, what came across to me in your book was you really seem to kind of cover a sliver, and I, when I say sliver, I mean a, a small sliver of George Washington's life here. And I wonder, you know, by focusing so intensely on George Washington during, you know, these these several months, did you walk away from this research uh, with a different understanding of George Washington? Or better yet, did it make you rethink kind of some of the seminal biographies of George Washington in a different way? Yeah, so I believe writing about Washington's life during a, a two-year period uh, from the Yorktown campaign, 1781, through the uh, formal announcement of peace, which is fall of 1783. Uh, you're right, it is a small slice of his life, but it, it's George Washington, so it's extremely well documented, and there's a ton of material, even for a very short period of time. Uh, I'm not sure that I recovered anything that would really challenge uh, anything, any kind of received wisdom about Washington. Uh, no, I, it's really Washington's character matters a lot in resolving the crisis. And that's something people have emphasized. And you know what? It's true. It really is. Uh, the way that he was trusted by both the army and civilians. And really nobody else had the reputation for a public virtue that could have convinced people on both sides when they suspected each other so strongly. Really, Washington was the indispensable man. And as a historian, you know, we, we're kind of cynical sometimes. And we think, well, it can't possibly be that good. Uh, at least in this case, Washington's reputation really is deserved. One kind of fun thing I found about Washington, I didn't really write about this, but reading his letters, what came out to me is how sarcastic Washington is in, in places and how sometimes passive-aggressive in his letters. Uh, I hadn't really appreciated that previously. Washington is wound really tight. Um, he, he's very tightly wound. And that, the, his passions, right, he has a very bad temper. And he's often stressed out. He doesn't sleep very well and all that kind of stuff. And he keeps it under control mostly, but it seeps out in different ways. And the way he makes these little comments to people in some of his letters, it's, it's really kind of funny when you see Washington be frustrated. You know how hard it is for him to keep his temper. He's doing it mostly, but not entirely. So seeing a kind of sarcastic uh, Washington is not something I had really appreciated before, but that's something, an aspect of his personality that comes to the fore. Yeah, interesting. So the other thing, too, because, I mean, you know, your book really is about Washington as a central figure, but to me it sort of also is about the Articles of Confederation, which you had earl earlier mentioned um, in our conversation as being the, the precursor government to the government we're under now. And I'm wondering if, if this study kind of gave you an insight into the Articles of Confederation you might not have had you know, before you started this research. Yeah, so the book really sort of has two two places, two settings. It has the with the army in the Hudson Valley region, and then in with Congress in Philadelphia. And I kind of go back and, and forth between the two. 
Uh, yeah, the Articles of Confederation period, of course, what most people in, who went to you know, high school in the United States or took a U.S. history course know that it was the government before the Constitution and it failed. Maybe if you remember a little more, you'll remember that it made the states really powerful. Okay, so that's mostly what, what people, people know. Um, I came to have an appreciation that, yes, the Articles of Confederation government was a mess. But to understand why it was a mess in the particular way it was, writing a new form of government while fighting a war and trying to bring together 13 states that had divergent histories and were suspicious of each other was extremely difficult to do. And just to kind of appreciate what the Articles of Confederation achieved, it declared independence and it won the American Revolution. Uh, those are two big things. That shouldn't be discounted for all of its all of its failures, um, but it did have a lot of failures, especially in the way Congress operated. Uh, you know, it put heavy burdens on congressmen. Nobody wanted to serve in Congress really because he had to work so hard. One guy died because he was overworked in Philadelphia, uh, or at least that was what what the others attributed attributed his death to. So uh, it did have significant failures, but I think Articles of Confederation, you know, there's it's it's ripe for a kind of reappreciation. Um, I've thought sort of in passing about, well, maybe I'll write kind of a history of the uh, uh, American, the Confederation period. Then I wonder who would actually read this and whether people would be disappointed that it wasn't about the Confederacy during the American Civil War, uh, because that's what people would assume Confederation means. But I think it is kind of a, an understudied period. It's not just kind of the precursor to the uh, a Constitution, a failure, uh, but it is kind of this, this period where dealing with very difficult questions coming up with impartial solutions, but, you know, its achievements, its achievements are pretty, are pretty important too. So do, do you feel like this episode, though, should have alerted the founders to the problems with the Articles Confederation, or is it, or not, or is it just, was such a blip? Yeah, so, so this is something that some of the participants themselves, uh, Hamilton writes about how this shows the, are the, the government is, is a failure. Um, the, uh, Henry Knox, who is a general and he is the commander at West Point, where the U.S. Military Academy is today. Uh, he writes, you know, if you want to fix these problems, you, you big men, you politicians need to get together and to create a new government. Uh, yes, he, he says that. You need to create a new government. Um, that's not helpful for solving their particular problem at the time. But this is something that people see, especially the officers in the Army. Uh, the officers were treated very badly during the war, always undersupplied, never really paid. And they can see that most of the blame, they lay the blame at the feet of the Congress and the people in the states who they see, the officers see, as being too selfish, too much regard to their own state interest and not enough for the good of the whole. So for kind of a core of officers and some politicians, they can see this as yet another example of why the, um, why the government is too weak, central government is too weak, and why there needs to be something new to uh, be able to have some kind of policy independent of the states. You know, and I know with a project like this, um, you consult a variety of numerous uh, manuscript collections. You know, and one of the things for me, I always get excited about. I think, I think researching is my favorite part of the um, publication process. <laughs> you know, but obviously much more than writing. But I, I love it when I'm in the archives and I find a document that just kind of answers a question, unlocks something, or maybe I find something that no one else has seen that gives me an insight 
that might produce something that's original. So I wonder if you had an experience like this in researching this book. Is there a document or a collection that kind of stood out to you like saying, this is, you know, this is the thing that kind of helped me put all this stuff together? Yeah, it's really interesting that, that, that you say that about um, you know, your interest in the sort of the research first and the writing second. Uh, I'd, I'd probably say I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm kind of the writing first and the research second. Although, of course, they're, they're both the, you know, the same process. and They're tied together, so you can't really do one without the other. Um, there is a, a letter I found from the Baron von Steuben. Uh, he's a, a Prussian-born officer who comes to help uh, instill discipline and drill the American army uh, during the war. And he has an administrative position in Philadelphia. And he's writing a letter to Henry Knox, again, the commander at West Point. And von Steuben is uh, kind of reporting in on what's going on in Philadelphia behind the scenes. And he mentioned that there's a plan afoot that he called an expedient. Right? I like the way he puts it kind of indirectly, right? You see that, you kind of perk up. Okay, ooh, he's calling it expedient. Well, something's going on here. Uh, the expedient was a plan to have Washington write a letter on behalf of the army asking Congress for permission to keep the army in the field, even if peace were declared. So this would be a way of kind of finessing, uh, avoiding a showdown over disbanding the army before the uh, Congress could do something about the officers' pensions. So the uh, officers could stay in the field. They wouldn't have to go home because they, they were afraid of if they went home, then everyone would ignore them because they're not needed anymore and they'll never get their pensions. Uh, but at the same time, it would preserve Congress's authority over the army, right? It's Congress telling the officers to do this. So there's no kind of rejection of civilian authority. Okay, this would kind of kind of thread the needle uh, between the extremes that uh, that they were facing. And I like it because it's it's kind of finessing what's going to happen. It's it's relying on Washington to be the one to play the the um, to mediate the problem between the sides. And there's a line where Bon Soyman says, such a letter could only come from the commander-in-chief. You get an idea of what Washington's importance was. This is kind of an aha moment for me, like you were describing, where you could see the various plans that I'd only kind of glimpsed coming into focus. Um, and this is really what ends up happening, is that the officers do eventually ask Washington to write on their behalf. And he does write on their behalf and appeals to Congress uh, it's kind of their intermediary between them. So you can kind of see that the plan might not have been to have the army rebel and threaten Congress. There's a way that people were thinking of resolving this crisis uh, that would give the officer something, but also preserve the, um, the leadership of the civilian authorities. So you can see that, okay, there's maybe a plan behind the scenes, but it was not a plan to overthrow the government or to issue violent threats or something like that. That really helped me kind of uh, develop the argument that I eventually developed, which is much more uh, along the lines of there's not really a real conspiracy. Um, there was certainly pressure being put on by the, the officers, but not a conspiracy to overthrow the government or threaten the government or anything. Through that letter, that expedient, you can see how there is a plan, right? but it felt short of issuing violent threats. It was a plan to work within the system as much as possible to achieve the officer's objectives. So once I knew that there was that expedient, that idea floating around in Philadelphia, I could read the letters a little bit differently. I didn't have to choose between either arguing, yes, there was a conspiracy, or no, there was no conspiracy at all. There's no connection. I could argue that, okay, here was a plan, but it's not quite as nefarious as it might appear without 
that that evidence of having some other ideas floating around under discussion in Philadelphia. Hmm, interesting. The other thing that came away because you know you do discuss a little bit in the book about your process and and how you got materials is I noticed you um, went to a variety of um, online databases to do research, some of it secondary, I believe some of it primary. And I'm wondering, compared to your, you know, your previous book, how has the accessibility question as far as online databases, did it, did it kind of help you? Do you feel like this book, um, you know, couldn't have been done, maybe couldn't have been done in the, in the speed it was done or couldn't have been done in the way it was done without this online component? Yeah, so the, the, all the digital resources that are now available were absolutely essential uh, for me to be able to do this project now. Uh, I think another person in different circumstances could have looked at all the, the manuscripts in person traveling across the country. But, but for me, um, you know, as the father of three small children, I just I just couldn't do it. I can't I can't travel like I used to when my uh, my single days during grad school. Uh, I mentioned my first book was heavily archival. I don't know. I went to uh, 10, 11, 12 states maybe, different archives. Could spend, you know, two weeks away from home. You know, no no nobody counting on me, no responsibilities like that. Uh, that's all very different from the way I live now. So just the ability to get things at home uh, on the various uh, databases, founders online, which is the collection of the, the papers of many of the uh, founding fathers, George Washington, Jefferson, Adams, people like that. It's just, it was just wonderful to be able to do that research uh, from home. Also, and I shouldn't, it should, it's not all digital. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of material has been uh, microfilmed, which is kind of a, a lower tech thing, but now you can have that um, sent to you via interlibrary loan. And you can get the scans right off the computer screen and just scan a bunch of stuff and then take it home and look at it, uh, look at it later. So really for me to be able to do this project now at this part of my life, um, I couldn't have done it without, without the uh, technological resources out there. Now, this is not to say that, you know, that uh, archives are unimportant or anything like that. There's just a ton, a ton of material that is available only in physical form you have to go visit. But um, what drew me to this project was really the feasibility of it, that I could do it without having to travel, without having to be away from home for any period of time. I really didn't need to. I mean, looking, looking back, I could have, I think, gotten away with 100% you know, from my house or from the library. Um, so that's just a different project, a different kind of project, and that's really just because of my, my circumstances. It made it very practical for me to be able to write the book. One of the interesting things that um, you know you mentioned about you know wanting to go to the archives, if if you had your you know if you could actually achieve your desire, is the idea that the archive and the culture of the archives are changing in the digital age. I know I've been recently doing some research, and I I love sitting like I mentioned, I love sitting in the archives. I love reading the manuscripts, and you know just sitting there and discovering things. That's my favorite part of the research process. But I noticed that you know, in this, this research I'm working on, in some times I would go to the archives and I would say, okay, I want to see this manuscript collection. And they would say, oh, just come along here. And they would put me in front of a computer because they digitized it, put it online. <laughs> and so I was reading it online mm -hmm. in the archives <laughs> on a computer that I could have did in my home, you know. But, right. And it, I got to admit it, it, it deflated me a little bit. I kind of felt like, oh, this is, you know, 
it's, it's less not the of same. An experience. Yeah, exactly. It's not not the same. But luckily enough, there were things I can only have saw there. So I still, you know, I still needed to be there. It wasn't like a wasted trip or anything like that. But I would imagine at some point, you know, because because if you think about it, you know, archivists want you to come. Librarians want you to come. They want you to sit down. They want you to sit at the table. You know, and and they want to go to the back room and take these things out that you know no one's seen for five years, ten years, twenty years, and let you look at them. That's their that's their essence. That's their being. You know, and now it's almost like shifted to archivist desire. Almost is like putting everything online in a digital form. Like that seems to be the drive of a lot of these collections. Yeah, I'm just thinking of. The experience you mentioned, right, pulling something out that nobody's seen in a long time. I had that experience researching my first book. I swear there's some things. I must have been the first, maybe the first person to look at this stuff since it came to the library. I mean, maybe nobody's ever touched this stuff before. And that's really just uh, an amazing experience, a humbling experience, that this person collected these papers and they've been sitting there for maybe, you know, 50, 60, 100 years maybe, just waiting for me to, to do something with them. Um, that's really a wonderful experience. Uh, you don't get that when you're doing sort of founding father stuff, which people have mined um, you know, very extensively, and it's online. You can search for it. But um, it's just different. It just depends what kind of project you want to do and um, you know, what kind of questions you're trying to ask and all that kind of thing. So um, for students out there, I always recommend you know, put feasibility right at the top of your list because um, you'll find something interesting once you start digging. If you're a curious person, you have a curious mind, you'll find something no matter what it is you're really looking at. Yeah, that's the same thing I tell my students. If you just pick a topic and you pursue it, a question will come. It doesn't matter, you know, there's no there's no topic that's superior to another topic. It's it's what you it's the methods and things that you bring to the topic that make the topic a, you know, a, a good topic or not. Yes, exactly. All right, on on that note, I think we'll we'll end our conversation here. David, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me. That was Dr. Robert Casanello talking to his colleague, Dr. David Head, about his latest book called A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations.